everyone. Welcome to Horn of Africa Leftist Podcast. Today we have a really special guest and I'm excited about this episode because it's timely and it's really relevant to the uh, latest development in the Horn, which, uh, you know, Sudan is uh, technically part of the Horn, uh, considering its history and its links with uh, all the states, neighboring states. So Sudan, despite the mass movement, protests, different history, has not been the, the focus despite, uh, you know, its history and its uh, uh, various movements inside uh, it, it doesn't really have that much focus from the uh, the left media to the extent of what we're seeing in, in, with Ethiopia so that's an overall issue but today I have a special guest with me Mahadar she's currently a student in political science and PhD she's done her research in the 2020 uprising in Sudan focusing on the local resistant committee the tea sellers and she has spoken to scholars and activists so Mahadar, I, w- I was like to call her Mahi. Uh, she's really um, somebody that's really focused on the uh, the current development and the different different forces and structures. And we're going to talk about the possibilities, uh, you know, with the with the uprising. So Mahadar, uh, you know, in addition to being a researcher, she's also part of HOA Pals, uh, uh, which I'm a member member as well. Uh, so I'm really excited to have her on here, and you know, it's just interesting. Uh, discussion we need to have uh, for leftists or any progressive force to understand and center Sudan uh, and support the Sudanese people in the mass movement. So, Mahadar, welcome. Really excited to have this conversation. Thank you, Philemon. Uh, and I just want to say thank you for inviting me on your platform, and I look forward to our conversation. Before we start, I think uh, Sudan and its rich history, uh, you know, a lot of people say the labor union and its, its history and the mass movement, uh, comparable to the region, it's, uh, it's quite advanced in its uh, activity and its formation compared to neighboring state. But uh, before we start on the labor union, the focus, we would definitely have to have like uh, your perspective on the history, especially from the uh, Egypt and uh, British colonialism and then that role. So I uh, just want to hear your perspective and overview of the different timeline, the uh, historical timeline that, you, you know, you think we should focus on for uh, our, uh, the audience to understand. Okay. I think to understand, like, the complexity of Sudan um, within Sudan and the diversity of its peoples, um, I think it's useful to just, like, let me briefly maybe walk you through some of the, the historical evolution of the space. So, you know, historically, you have nomadic Arab Muslim groups, uh, which had adopted Islam and Arabic as their language settle and start intermarrying with locals uh, and becoming nomadic stock breeders. And so these groups began to arrive around the Red Sea coast and westwards towards the Nile. So, you know, around the confluence of the Blue Nile and White Nile, uh, Central Sudan maintained like sedentary farming traditions, while the nomadic Arab communities dominated trade between Egypt and the South. And so this kind of evolves to create like uh, particular classes in the Sudanese structure. And so near the end of the Neolithic period, uh, systematic food production, herding practices, industrial production were also accompanied by a proliferation of urban urban settlements to the north because of the nature of the environment and the Gazira River. And so to the west, you had similar like urban complexes formed and you had like large metropolises like the Kerma uh, 
which is like two, two, uh, 2400 BCE. Uh, and you had political formations like the Kingdom of Kush. Uh, but then after the end of the Christian Nuba Kingdom, uh, you see in the 16th century, the rise of the North Central Funj Sultanate. And that's when Arabization really increases in the region. And so the Funj Kingdom is considered to have been populated by Blacks from the West and Arabs who quickly start uh, ascending numerically and culturally. Um, after 1850, uh, Egypt starts subcontracting of Sudanese nomads uh, to supply enslaved labor and Sudanese products to transform their so and Sudanese products, which transforms social systems. Basically, Egypt under the aegis of the Khedive also installs Sudanese sheikhs to collect taxes. Uh, some of these sheikhs were also granted land from dispossessed peasants, uh, making them rapidly rich. Uh, and so th this this kind of evolves into the the supremacy of the Northern River Rain region and particular Islamic groups within that region. Um, so, but, you know, realistically in the West, you had the four and the Masalit Sultanates that persisted until the 20th century. Uh, and the rulers and the subjects of these Sultanates were Muslim, but did not identify as Arab or speak Arabic as their main language. And then you had other communities in the far north and the east uh, also practiced Islam, but did not identify as Arab or lose their language. And this is aside from uh, South, the country that is now South Sudan, which had a completely like practice Christian religions, practice animus, uh, uh, animist religions and other things. Um, but you see like since the Khadive period and since the installment of sheikhs uh, to collect taxes, you see like a top down imposition of Islamization and Arabization in the region. And um, I think it would be really important to mention the Mahdist movement because to understand the roots of uh, uh, Islamic ruling in Sudan or why it's, it has had support from the people, I think it's under, it's important to understand the Mahdist state, uh, which lasted from like 1885 to 1898 and has been referred by many as the, the only anti-imperialist uh, Islamist republic uh, during that time. And so the Mahdist movement kind of uh, emerges as a struggle against imperialism. Um, and, you know, it was launched by the people of the village communities, the slave, uh, the enslaved peasants of the estates, uh, uh, the enslaved beggars of the market towns who were being oppressed by uh, e Egyptians and uh, uh, Sudanese who were working for the Egyptians. And so... The Mahdist movement is really a radical movement, uh, uh, but it then you see after the death of the Mahdi, the state is quickly restructured, estates become seized, and taxes are levied, uh, all to the advantage of military leaders and particular uh, groups I mentioned to you earlier, like the North and Islamist groups. And so uh, it's also important to... to um, to kind of point out during this Mahdist uh, uh, movement, um, even though it's anti-imperialist, it's radical uh, at the time uh, for Sudanese peoples like those of southern Sudan or uh, in Darfur, uh, neighboring people, but foreign to quote unquote the state. Um, it was a period of Northern Islamic conquest, enslavement and forced Islamization. So you have this complex history of like, on the one hand, there is these, uh, you know, uh, anti-imperialist radical movement going on. But on the other hand, you see how a state is being formed and it, it's uh, it's relegating <clears throat> and denying the existence of many nations and nationalities within the people. Uh, so, you know, moving out that like colonialism continues, Egypt uh, and uh, Brit the British are, Sudan is being ruled under the condominium period. And so nationalist movements begin, uh, uh, but the, it's also important to understand like national move nationalist movements in Sudan were led by a colonially educated class of men from the Northern Riverine regions. And so most of 
these men received education under British colonial rule, and uh, the British were intentional about teaching, uh, uh, um, offering education to these folks because they wanted a cadre of government administrators, um, and they wanted folks who would run the cotton schemes, uh, but would have a, a, would be in alliance with the British, basically. So these middle class men not only defined Sudan's national identity as Arab but, and Islamic, but it's also inherently masculine. The state is masculine, and um, this is the kind of politics that dominates post-independence uh, Sudanese politics. Uh, and so you have an educated and property-owning ruling class, predominantly from and within the North, dominating the public sphere and would go on to use political Islam to assert their legitimacy. Uh, and so regardless of parliamentary rule in the 1960s and again in the 1980s, you know, there's a persistent alliance of traditional agricultural and merchant capitalist forces uh, that maintain power through political Islam. Um, so I hope that was a good historical pivot to your question. <laughs> yes, it was. That was fire and on point. I really appreciate your breakdown. Okay. Uh, I, mean, I think you mentioned the national question and uh, I think they're very complex uh, nationalities or I, I don't know if we want to describe it as that, but you did mention that. But the next question is, uh, you know, how do you view the issue of the Nubian and their struggle uh, in, in Sudan? Where do the Nubians fit in the narrative of Pan-Africanism? and the national questions are they an oppressed nation within the nation state of uh, Sudan and before uh, you answer that I mean like Nubia and uh, the, the term Nubian it's uh, often co-opted in the diaspora you know you're my Nubian king you're not my, my uh, Nubian queen but these are real people and they're ancient yeah. and they do exist so just want to hear your perspective on the Nubian question inside Sudan and the, the history okay um, so you know Sudan has more than uh, five 597 like single unit organization groups, which people usually refer to as tribes, but I refuse to because not only of the connotations, but the fact that this term does not reflect the depth or the entirety of what the group structure means. So, you know, you're looking at 597 different groups within the country. Uh, there are over 100 languages, 400 dialects, um, even if Arabic is the lingua franca. Um, and even though like um, uh, Islam is the uh, majority practice religion, uh, you have uh, you know, people like the Beja and around the Nuba Mountains uh, still practice Christianity and animist religions. And so the diversity of Sudan has actually earned the formation, the title of microcosm of Africa. Um, and so, for example, you look at South Kordofan state's population, uh, it includes more than 50 ethnically, culturally, and linguistically diverse groups, right? And while the ethnic landscape is numerically dominated by like various Arab and Nubian groups, there are multiple groups, including the Fulani and Hausa, whose origins can be traced back to West Africa. Africa. And so the term Nuba itself, for example, in the context of South Kordofan, refers to about 1.5 million non-Arab people who inhabit the state, but uh, they themselves are composed about uh, 10 different ethnicities, multiple religions, and like 92 single unit organizations. So kind of to your question of like, what is, uh, even the term Nuba would, would require us to kind of delve into what it means, because uh, identity and state formation in Sudan has been affected by histories of colonialism histories of production, enslavement, Islamic nationalism, uh, which have been shared among specific groups with specific cultures and in specific geographic locations. So if we're looking at the Nuba in South Kordofan and the Nuba in different regions of Darfur, Currently, they probably have had different uh, 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 different histories, and so 
I mean, uh, even academic writing shows that like race and racial identity are not only ideologically and historically contingent, but they are structured. And what I mean by structures, they've developed in response and interaction with uh, economic marginalization, exclusion from power and other forms of inequality. Um, And so these inequalities kind of take us back to like uh, the political, economic and cultural hegemony of a small group of Arab speaking Sudanese elites, mainly from the north, who have held power and systematically exploited non-Arab, non-Muslim groups in the countries, uh, what you call peripheries. And, uh, you know, uh, these Arabization policies are promoted by these elites because it serves their purpose of consolidating power. Uh, but it also means you have different nations and nationalities being oppressed under a state that has chosen to identify with only one identity that uh, exists in Khartoum. In Khartoum, yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, it's really uh, important that you did focus on the economic economic base and production, which we'll uh, pretty much put, um, get to in uh, later on with this. Uh, I, I think the production and mentioning the you know different class perspective is really important. I really appreciate that. But uh, moving forward, I think the you know I think the most important player uh, and organization in uh, uh, Sudan uh, is the Sa- uh, Sudanese Communist Party. Uh, I mean, since we're focusing on the national uh, nations and nationalities, uh, uh, I just want to hear what was. Uh, from your perspective, what was the position of the Sudanese Communist Party in regards to South Sudanese grievance uh, during the early years? Yeah. So um, the Sudanese Communist Party has always kind of been one of the most progressive forces in uh, formal politics uh, and informal politics at that, too, because they're highly involved with labor unions. Uh, so the, the the Communist Party was formed in 1946, which is uh, um, 10 years before uh, independence. Um, and so it, it was organized mainly around workers and garnered support from the educated middle class and towns. And uh, you also had it also garnered support from from laborers and agricultural schemes and railway and port workers. And so the party has always been one of the most progressive voices. And um, it, like even if you're looking at gender, the first formally organized political women's group emerged within the Communist Party and its successor becomes the Sudanese Women's Union, uh, which was formed in 51. And so, um, yeah, I'm sorry. So, yeah, the Communist Party is... So you have in 1956, uh, despite Sudan being one of the most diverse countries on the continent, you have sectarian like religious parties uh, who are considering making the state an Islamic parliamentary state, right? And uh, the only party at the time that disagrees with making Sudan an Islamic Republic was the Communist Party. And the Communist Party was concerned with the the Southern question. Uh, And the Southern question is referenced to the autonomy sought by those in South Sudan because of the history of the country, the the two countries. Uh, And so... um, yeah, the reality is is that, yes, they've always kind of been the most progressive voices. They've always been the forces who have been looking at uh, South Sudan grievances and kind of legitimizing those grievances uh, because other dominant parties within the, the, the uh, within Khartoum were sectarian parties, Islamic parties who sought to create an Islamic republic that did not like reflect the reality of all people in Sudan. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I really wonder if uh, John Grange uh, wasn't assassinated, his role, uh, you know, collaboration with the Sudanese Communist Party to try a uh, some type of federation, and that's what he was uh, focused on instead of uh, pushing a South Sudanese independent state, uh, John Garange. Uh, but yeah, I mean the South Sudanese. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I just yeah, definitely. I mean South. Uh, um 
John Garang was like a, a visionary and he was a liberation struggle and he was socialist in many aspects and definitely he did not seek the secession of South Sudan. In fact, he just, uh, he sought the autonomy of, of peoples in within all parts of Africa. And he had a vision that was more pan-African than anything and that was a threat to uh, political elites who wanted uh, power. Yeah, definitely for the audience listening, uh, definitely research John Garang and South Sudan leader. He's a visionary and uh, somebody that I think uh, his case and his argument for uh, not just uh, S- uh, Sudan that looks like more of the north, uh, unified, and his vision was unique. And it kind of is uh, something that the horn, uh, especially for people in Ethiopia or Chetu- uh, Somalia to look into because he yeah. his, his vision is really uh, something that we need to uh, reevaluate as a player and actor uh, that can, uh, you know, reimagine the horn that can give uh, you know, the question mentioned nations and nationalities, but uh, give it a new way to uh, solve this issue. But moving forward, I mean, these are really, really important questions that, and points that you mentioned. Uh, I think to focus on the labor union. So it seems Sudan still has active labor union that impacts and shaped the protests in Sudan. Uh, you know, the current pr- uh, protest right now. What do you think uh, about the Western press and how it ignores or mischaracterizes the class dynamic of the Sudanese protest, the anti-neoliberal narrative, or have you noticed that? I mean, so just to add on before you answer, I think uh, during the last two, three years, I've seen, uh, you know, the the doctor union or the medical student union or focused on, you know, the impact of the sanction, uh, you know, they were focus on anti-austerity push on the ground and that narrative is just like totally wiped clean from the headlines and the perspective of the global left or the audience is like these people are resisting imperialism chokehold on uh, Sudan the sanction years and that perspective is missing from that but I I just want to hear your perspective on that yeah in fact just to respond to your last point like there's a a definite correlation between austerity measures and demonstrations in Sudan so um, you know yes uh, the labor uh, unions in Sudan have always played a central role in demonstrations and movements. Um, and Sudan has one of the strongest histories of labor unionizing in Africa and even the world, I would say. Uh, the unions have always had close connections with the Communist Party. Uh, and despite the attempt to destroy or corrupt them by each military regime, uh, some of them went underground, uh, others went into exile and sustained this kind of profound labor movement. Um, and, you know, you can't, like, you look, if you look up the railway uh, workers uh, union at that point, it was one of the largest unions in the world. Um, and so, mainstream press ignores these realities because of the framing that is used to describe movements in Africa. It's, you know, movements are sporadic, they're spontaneous, or they're very isolated, like they're anti-dictator, like anti-one person, or anti-one aspect of oppression and exploitation, instead of actually movements mainly being anti-capitalist, anti-neoliberal agendas. Uh, Like during the 2019 uh, uprising, for example, I can give you a few examples. In West Kordofan, uh, protesters had held a vigil in front of the state Ministry of Oil, condemning the impacts of oil production on the environment and the health of, uh, of the inhabitants. Uh, you had in uh, Kalakla, which is a southern Khartoum uh, uh, neighborhood, and residents protested for the removal of rainwater from the streets of these densely populated districts. Um, in another protest in Kasala, and I'm telling you these are di- different regions, right? In Kasala, you had herders express their opposition to like how farmers have been, their pasturing lands have been encroached and is being privatized 
criticized. And they went and held a vigil in front of the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry. Um, you know, so instead of the fact that the people are fighting a system, you know, mainstream media always chooses to represent it more narrowly in a way that doesn't rock the global capital system from which it benefits itself. Um, in fact, labor organizing is, is so strong in Sudan. You have unions and precarious labor sectors like uh, the Sunni's Tea Sellers Association. And the Sunni's Tea Sellers Association is a group that emerged out of uh, the 1990 Women's Food and Tea Sellers Cooperative in Khartoum. Uh, the union, last I checked, had about 20, uh, has about 20 associations within it and an outstanding uh, uh, 27,000 members, with at least 10,000 of them being sellers, uh, tea sellers. And for anyone who's lived in Africa, when I say tea sellers, I'm talking about, you know, the folks who are women who are selling tea on the streets, food uh, by like, you know, all of these these uh, construction sites and whatnot. Um, and so um, I think to answer your question, it's because of, of the, the radical nature and the most, uh, the, the explicit nature of what movements represent and what they're against. You know, for, you know, people are demonstrating against the fact that their lands are being taken, that they can't make food, they, they don't have access to water. And all of this is tied to like imperialism and capitalism. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's much easier to just talk about how the movement, the women's movement in Sudan or that one women's movement was anti-Bashir as opposed to like you had an association which was present which was uh, requesting that its labor rights be respected that it can people can move in dignity and uh, humanity so I hope that answers your question it does I mean like uh, it's, it's relevant to the region you know uh, I'm glad you're emphasizing Sudan has a strong labor union that's kind of unique compared to the region yes. uh, but yeah I mean the the protest uh, from today uh, 2018, 2019, the narrative on social media, the overall majority dominant narrative that or shaped or that was manufactured was to just present this is a fight against uh, dictatorship or this is a fight against one individual, uh, personalizing it, yes. totally distracting the class dynamic, the class struggle, the worker struggle. And that's intentional. And it happens inside Ethiopia, it happens inside Somalia. The worker struggle and the narrative of the workers and the horn is missing, is intentional. And in the diaspora, there are media gatekeepers that intentionally just like mute these questions toward making it. This is about democracy, uh, voting, which is our very tokenized, symbolic, like superficial way of looking at power when yes. it's be about the workers. So just, can you can you more give detail about the tea seller? It's really interesting because. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to, because that's one of the things why I wanted to also pursue my research is like, um, because, you know, this is very important because most of our workers in Africa, um, the peasantry, however you want to refer to it, are uh, precarious workers, right? They are hustlers in the streets. They are, people are, don't have these formal jobs. So to have a union among these, uh, these kinds of uh, what people would like to refer to informal, but I really precarious work, um, is very important in my opinion, because much of our urban dwellers, especially in Africa are like that you know people are hustling in the streets every day you know you have the shoe shiners in Ethiopia you have you have all of these workers who are integral to the community but are overlooked because they're not considered formal right even if they contribute largely to the economy and sustain the community as we speak um, and so the Sunni Tea Sellers Association is as I said it represents tea sellers and women run street vendors 
uh, Audia Coco was the founder. She was born in the Nuba Mountains, uh, which is in South Kordofan. And like many internal migrants and working people in urban and urban peripheries, uh, her family had fled to Khartoum to avoid conflict. Uh, and like many other uh, women-run street vendors, she joined the profession to kind of support her family, right? And so the association formed to offer like legal aid and confront uh, local police authorities. Uh, they were referred to as the Keisha under Bashir. Uh, and they consist- consistently harassed th- street vendors, right? They t- attempted to tax them. They removed them from the streets like so they couldn't work. And so the organization really formed to address these issues of women facing uh, this. And so um, so one of the things the organization did, it, it helped women secure uh, vendor permits, which were a very difficult task for many of the street vendors. Uh, it also provided members assistance to like educate their family members and to conduct funeral processions. So it just shows you like the services provided by the organization shows how like low-waged or unwaged women are exploited by the state and overburdened by social reproduction. So you, the nature of these organizations and how they're functioning shows you the the uh, inextricable kind of realities of what exploited and oppressed people are facing, right? People can't feed their families, but people can't even have uh, permits issued by the government. Uh, people cannot afford to have funeral processions. So it's, a, it's not just a, a labor union, how we imagine it, isolated from everything else but it's it's a labor unions are uh, uh, the T-Service Association is like a union addressing impacts uh, like inextricable kind of issues uh, women are facing in Sudan solid points uh, you know just to relate it to just the horn overall like for example uh, do you see the potential of labor union returning to Ethiopia or or what is the uh, how do you view the labor union in Ethiopia in relation to uh, Sudan compare I mean it's not, even Eritrea, I mean, the, there's a lot of work to do in the region as far as organizing the labor. But um, how how do you what's your view on that? Basically, well, I would say like you know it's the same thing that Bashir uh, the Bashir regime did, like the National Congress Party or or um, the TPLF in Ethiopia has done is like one of the first things they attacked when they got into power was the labor unions um, because labor unions uh, mean the people's power, workers' power, you know, and so any uh, uh, authoritative regime within our continent um, is is surely going to attempt to co-opt or dominate or destroy labor unions uh, because that they represent power of the people, power of the working class. And, um, you know, I, 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 what I mentioned about like uh, Sudanese labor union movement, uh, movements went underground or started functioning in exile, I think that has allowed them to sustain like profound unions, even if the state attempted, like did manage to co-opt most of the unions that, that were located, right? Whereas I'm not sure the extent to which uh, labor unions unions within Ethiopia uh, have been able to sustain themselves at the profound level. I think the state did a really good job at disenfranchising and completely like uh, uh, crushing unions. Uh, but is there with the potential when you ask me about what do I see about the future of labor unions? I think it's an inevitable future because at the end of it, uh, you know, when you're looking at uh, oppression and exploitation, it's, it's you know, it's a class basis that uh, workers will have to unionize or to come together in order to uh, defend themselves from further exploitation oppression so it's just a matter of like what is the historical nature in which these unions will form um, but I see them as an inevitable part of liberation or transformation of our communities because workers will have to come together to to kind of stand against uh, the state uh, I mean that's, that's solid points again uh, just to push on um, I, I, just to understand the role of 
the diaspora in the protest or has there been support of the diaspora and the labor union in Sudan uh, or what is, how do you view the diaspora basically in the relationship to the uprising and uh, supporting the different structure? Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think the diaspora has been an important aspect of looking at the uprising in 2019. So, I mean, you know, one of the things like protests started like uh, in, in, um, in, in within Sudan in different parts and peripheral regions and um, in Khartoum itself. But then it quickly was like the diaspora took it up like days after you had protests in Paris and Australia, in Egypt. Uh, and so you see like there is a network uh, that um, that functions within what's happening on the ground. And you look at like the Sudanese Professional Association and many of the, the folks uh, leading in those positions have also lived abroad or in exile for many years. And this is the book I mentioned to you uh, one time we talked is uh, Dr. Uh, Nada Mustafa Ali has this book, Gender and Politics, Where Do We All Belong? And she kind of traces the, the movements within Sudan, especially labor movements and diaspora movements. And she kind of shows how uh, when when the state was forcing, uh, enforcing and attempting to co-opt and crush movements, labor unions, uh, a lot of them went uh, into exile, but they functioned. So I think the diaspora in Sudan like is integral. And I think they work with coordination of what's happening in Sudan. Of course, you know, what you said earlier, like like conceptualizing democracy in a certain way and stuff, that is bound to happen because the diaspora doesn't represent the, the, the national people. But um, they are they have been active. Some even went back during 2019 to uh, um, join the uprising. And right now, uh, when there's like internet blackouts, when the military shuts it down, the diaspora are intentional about taking on the struggle. And so it's actually a very interesting dialectic about the global nature of uh, uh, movements, liberation struggles at this point in age, because you have the internet, you have all of these different things that have evolved and, and have impact. And so you also have the diaspora pressuring for governments you know so that i think it's it's the i think the diaspora is a very important part of thinking about uh movement in uprisings in sudan um but you know with 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 context yeah i mean I, i'll try to relate it to the role of diaspora with regards to ethiopia somalia and eritrea yeah. uh, with various like uh protests or issues internally um i mean the problem i saw maybe correct me on on this uh uh, it's the 2018, 2019, 2020. The, we saw the importance of social media, Twitter. Uh, we saw the people turning their profiles blue to focus on the protest. And the diaspora seemed like played a role in it. Uh, for example, you know, I highlighted this in the past. Uh, J. Cole, uh, rapper J. Cole, uh, tweeted, uh, about Sudan, which is like very superficial, but it really was trying because it was related to his manager who was Sudanese uh, background. And in mm -hmm. addition to that, his record label, there is a uh, boss who's Sudanese. You had all these celebrity and uh, focus on Sudan. But the other problematic thing I saw is, yes, I think it was important from the perspective of understanding the role of imperialism. I think there were certain factions in the diaspora who are neoliberal and they had a different, they were on a different class struggle. Yes. Uh, you know, there, there were some elements aligned with the NED, uh, US 
aid or various entities that could co-opt and uh, uh, misdirect this uh, uh, international solidarity uh, with the Sudanese masses toward supporting a neoliberal project or toward imposing, uh, uh, you know, individual like Hamdak to co-opt the ground up uh, pro poor working class anti authority movement. And that's what it had led to it. I think people uh, really were not uh, because they're not aware of who's the players uh, led to, you know, supporting something that like was managed and co-opted by different neoliberal entities. How did you view the support of the, you know, social media with the people turning their uh, profile blue, uh, various celebrities? How, how do you view that? Yeah. So, you know, you kind of point to like how, why we should view like what's going on in Sudan as a process as opposed to like isolated events because, um, you know, because of the history, like because of like the Bashir regime kind of oppressions, a lot of uh, movements were forced to become NGOs. Um, a lot of them. So, you know, you know, the NGOization is an, on itself a very neoliberal agenda, uh, but it, the nature of the regime, the reality of the moment kind of like created, proliferated these forms of organization. And like you said, you know, uh, many, many uh, might have, neo, many of the diaspora might have neoliberal agendas, uh, a lack of clarity but here's the thing like there's like kind of a dialectic process ongoing there's enough folks on the ground who are organized and uh, uh, autonomous and working towards what they see as lacking and defining their own forms of democracy uh, that the diaspora has or that one uh, group of diaspora neoliberal without lack of class analysis has been unable to kind of um, bring their own form of democracy or like their own form of liberation into the process it also helps that the communist party many of whom are like in the diaspora have a socialist outlook so they are aware of the class struggle and the class analysis and that um you know particular privileged people do not represent all of the people and you know actually i've, I've been really impressed even with young people who uh, even if they don't use the language of class uh, are very aware that um they're pro- of their own privileges and and the fact that they don't represent all of sudan you know like what is going on in dark Four is very different from what is going on in Khartoum and has been for a very long time. And so um, I think it's 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 it would be beneficial for us to view this, view this as a process, right? And for us, uh, you know, when when I say us, folks who are like progressive and looking at this from the outside to kind of support uh, uh, the voices on the ground, because uh, there is a, a like the resistance committees, all of these uh, forces have been uh, influential and have been the ones leading the uprising in many ways. And so it hasn't been that one privileged class-based cl- uh, uh, organization has led the way. That it's like all sectors of society are kind of participating in the movement, and uh, all voices are like uh, autonomously organized sometimes. And so you see, um, it's it's kind of like all uh, all questions are being addressed in different ways. And and the, what the Sudanese are struggling with is having to make that work, you know. And so I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it progresses. Uh, but in my opinion, what we've seen like 2019 till now, it also shows you like. Like that that this is strongly moved by different classes and that has been helpful in being radical you know when when Bashir was removed um, many folks thought um, you know many folks that had a problem particularly with the Bashir regime were okay with going back into their houses and stopped demonstrating but there are many forces who are not who understood that uh, it was beyond Bashir's regime it was a whole
whole system that was exploiting them. So they remained on the streets. And so they pulled back those people who, who wanted to end it at that point, you know? So you, you see a very interesting dynamic evolving in Sudan. And you see a very uh, organized and kind of autonomously organized, but like a networked group, uh, folks working at different class levels, at different ethnic groups, different uh, gender groups, um, and all of that. Uh, you mentioned the, the importance of the young people and um, just observing the protest and, uh, you know, the energy and the momentum as majority of young people in the, uh, in the protest to the, the young men and women who are uh, pretty much getting killed by the state uh, and during the protest. Uh, you know, as we relate to identity, you know, the question of, um, you know, how, what is the communist view of, uh, on Pan-Africanism and Pan-Arabism? You know, what's your view on Sudan being viewed as an Arab state and, you know, the anti-African sentiment? Some people will criticize being a little racist, but what is what, what is this, um, you know, identity formation and, and relation to class? But yeah, I just want to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, so kind of why initially I gave you this breakdown of like, oh, we have all these groups, all of these things, is to show you the complexity of like, nothing is as simple as saying, but what is clear to all of us and should be unobscured is that Sudan is in Africa, you know, and therefore it is an African state. Um, so neither me nor anyone else can deny the history and identification of uh, being Arab and the influences of Arabs. Uh, but the point is all Sudanese are African, but not all Sudanese are Arab. And I think that's a central point in thinking about like what is going on with Sudan. And, you know, chauvinism, like because of the nature of uh, the the political and capital uh, um, emergence of like a particular group leading politics or leading uh, capital accumulation, you have a dominance of Arabization and and uh, Islamization led by the state. But it doesn't necessarily mean that like the people it represents the people of Sudan. It has represent and that's something um, in the book I mentioned to you earlier with Dr. Ali. She kind of traces uh, different uh, women's organizations, right? those who work in exile. And she shows you how um, some South Sudanese and North Sudanese women meet in Kenya. And they're kind of forced to reckon with like this Arab supremacy thinking the Northern women have and how Southern Sudanese have been like, you know, struggling because of their African uh, uh, heritage. And so this is something uh, Sudanese have been working on, you know. And if you look at the the previous, the last uprising in Sudan, um, which was in... Uh, 1985, <laughs> uh, the people's uprising, it was very different in terms of what happened now. Right now, the, the youth is embracing uh, a united front. The youth, like, right when 2019 uprisings happened, uh, Bashir went on state TV and was like, oh, this is a bunch of Darfuri youth trying to create, like, and you know, Darfuri African, basically, that's the, the subliminal message. Youth trying to create chaos in our country, in our nation. And people went out on the streets of Khartoum saying, we are Darfur, you know? So the there is an embrace of like, we are one people, even though we are differentiated across these different uh, um, things. And historically, if you're looking at uh, Sudan's role, uh, um, despite the state's attempt to manipulate Arabism as a tool for division and use political Islam to control, to make sure it controls the state, um, you know, the Sudanese have always been active in the pan-African struggle. Uh, the women of Sudan, for example, uh, they challenged colonialism. Uh, they protested the execution of Patrice Lumumba. Uh, they had demanded the release of Algerian freedom fighters. Um, and, you know, they've been confronting their own internalized chauvinisms. Um, and, you know, you had 
folks like Fatima Mahmoud Babikar. Um, you know, I, I'm butchering all these names, so I apologize for Sudanese who would listen to this. But um, you had her. She was a Sudanese living in exile uh, at the time of the Seventh uh, Pan African Congress, and she was one of the founding members of the Pan African Women's Liberation Organization. And so, you know, it is how, like, right now when you're reading at many academic or even articles like uh, uh, news articles, uh, the, the uprising was framed as the Arabs as part of the Arab Spring, you know, and that's a denial of Africanity that has been used by particular groups, but not necessarily reflects the reality of what's happened or the history of Sudan as a Pan-African uh, uh, um, country or like the people of Sudan function within Pan-Africanism. Oh, that's wow. That's <laughs> rich history. I didn't really uh, know those points you just raised in detail, mm-hmm. but for, for uh, the uh, Sudanese uh, listeners, uh, I also like to apologize if I'm butchering your name. Uh, the Sudanese dialect Arabic is very uh, rich and yeah, uh, we would like to apologize. But moving, moving forward, I think uh, just giving to the historical points you mentioned, uh, Jafir, I just want to just go over the role of Jafir Namiri. Uh, he was in power from 1969 to 1985 and supposedly he had the Sudanese Socialist Union uh, and, you know, there was somewhat of a socialist credential that he had. Uh, you know, he had initially he had a fallen out with the Communist Party, uh, but uh, I think he was the first person to install the Sharia law. Uh, I just want to give uh, uh, pretty much What's your take on his role? Uh, you know, what was his socialist credential? Is it something that we should care about? Or uh, what was the opposition to him? And just your overall historical take on him. Yeah, I think Nimari kind of represents a good uh, um, understanding of why we shouldn't be looking at change and transformation as a top-down process, but a bottom-up process. That, like, democratization and, and moving to, to an actual, like, you know, when I'm saying democratization, I'm saying the, like, equality of people is the fact that people get the, the food, the water, the energy they need and all of these things. So I think Nimari allows us to think of like how a top-down uh, approach to anything like that is, is it can be corrupted and is like unlikely to be sustainable. So he uh, he was part of the military leaders that uh, um, organized the Free Officers May Coup uh, and he came in with a secular socialist agenda uh, that acknowledged the multiplicity of Sudanese peoples and the need for uh, Southern autonomy. And so he was supported by the Communist Party. He was supported by the Sudanese Women's Union. And, uh, you know, Numeri was also part of a uh, 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 larger, uh, longer movement in the region from Egypt's free officers uh, uh, and Gamal Abdel Nasser in the 50s to Libya's free officers and Muammar, Muammar Gaddafi in 1969. So the free officers is it kind of like, so there's a regional context to how he, he uh, comes into that role. But there's also like the Communist party and folks on the ground that kind of support his agenda. So initially his policies, especially economic policies were radical, especially considering the interests of a consolidated like masculinized northern sectarian political class. So for example, factories and land in the hand of families affiliated to, uh, uh, you know, sectarian parties were appropriated. Uh, Banks and other private and foreign owned companies were nationalized. Uh, State companies uh, were created to control 
international trade. Um, and, you know, during the first few years, women were able to gain like more labor, political and social rights uh, and increased political representation in, in the public sector. Um, so, you know, he but then it didn't take long for his alliance between the progressives to kind of decay. And, you know, the like uh, quickly, the whether it was the union, the Sudanese Women's Union or the communists kind of uh, retract their, their support. And you see him kind of lean towards uh, um, other forces who can help him stay in power. Uh, and so, you know, um, I guess by 1971, I think, is when he dissolves the, the women's union and establishes his own women's union. And you see he starts slowly cracking down on these different progressive groups in the region. And, uh, you know, during the same time, he starts making relations with Islamist or like uh, sectarian parties, political parties. And, um, you know, the, the Communist Party kind of rejects its call, his call to form the Sudan Socialist Union because what he wanted to do is kind of dissolve the existing progressive movements and create his own controlled movement and not only do they reject it they kind of also organize a coup against him uh, but within three days you know he had the support of e Egypt and Libya at that time the coup was short-lived um, and so you kind of see like Numeri flip and by like the late 70s he is working uh, on this thing called like uh, he's working with uh, the coalition of sectarian political groups so this is when you see the National Unionist Party the Uma Party and the Muslim Brothers Party kind of uh, come into place and this is also the the where you know by 1977 he forms a formal agreement called the national reconciliation and, and this was signed between the the regime uh, the the parties that represented the Muslim Brothers and the Uma party and uh, this agreement also dissolves uh, other kind of uh, uh, coalitions working against them or could potentially threaten him um, but this it's a kind of in the same vein this uh, political agreement isolates all other progressives, all other non-religious uh, political parties in the region, and kind of starts Sudan on this path of Islamist uh, uh, integration, right? Um, so I, after the late 1970s, I think by 1983 is when he passes Sharia. Uh, and at that point, you have... Uh, um, the Islamist movement, which was led at, like by Hassan al-Turabi and uh, Bashir would be a part of going forward, uh, starts to kind of insert themselves in, in everywhere. Like they influence and integrate themselves in the university and student and professional organization, uh, in mosques and cultural centers. Uh, and so, you know, and they also, uh, they're taking advantage of tax exemptions that result from Islamic laws and Islamic banks. And so you have a particular class, like an Islamic class, uh, that uh, with particular political powers and access growing during that period. Um, and so by the end of it, I mean, uh, Numeri is removed and all his uh, uh, allies, including his Islamist allies, turn on him because it gets to a point where there's popular uprising and people kind of reject his... Uh, uh, but, you know, before he's rejected, there's a, a lot of like, you know, Numeri uh, reaches agreements with the IMF. He works with the World Bank program. You know, he adopts neoliberal policies, including privatization, you know, liberalization of uh, trade, bank credit restrictions, uh, interest rate, all of these things, uh, removal of farming subsidies, you know, and cutting of social service and public sector layoffs, all of which affects the people and kind of results in the uprising that that, that um, ends up with his removal from power. But um, he also has set the stage for Islamist power. So uh, that is how we see like a continuation and kind of why we see the Bashir regime emerge. 
So I was just curious about the the period from 1985 to 1989 before the Bashir regime uh, took over uh, in the coup. Uh, what was that transition period after all these years of the previous regime uh, and the different uh, progressive forces? Um, so that period is um, so you know the removal of uh, Numeri comes as as the popular uprising overtakes it, and um, you know between 85 and 89 we're looking at a coalition of different political groups groups attempting to work together. It's a parliamentary democratic kind of uh, period, uh, but they're really ineffective, right? They don't get a lot of things done. And they kind of, that is what paves the way for the Islamists to uh, conduct the 1989 coup uh, by Omar al-Bashir and, and uh, Hassan al-Turabi being the main uh, orchestrators. Okay, I mean, that's uh, reasonable. So the to emphasize the, you know, the role of Bashir, which was uh, from 1989 and 2018 when he was overthrown, uh, you know, he's a larger personality in the those years where uh, we saw, uh, you know, uh, political Islam being the center uh, with his uh, alliance with Tarabi during the 80s and uh, the presence of uh, bin Laden. Uh, and all these years... Um, during that brief period and the perception people had is that uh, Sudan was defiant uh, against Washington. Uh, it was not part of AFRICOM or uh, it was not compliant to the, you know, the usual expectations. So uh, what was your view of the Bashir regime era and the perception of this? And, you know, it, it was a long sanction year and the Sudanese people and masses suffered uh, suffocating years. But how should we view, from your perspective, the Bashir era and, you know, supposed anti-imperialist or, uh, you know, positions or policies that supposedly were in place? Okay. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, the manipulation, that is why when we started the, the first uh, question, I went, I took you to the Mahdi's revolution because it's important to know <clears throat> the revolutionary history of like what Islam has done in, in Sudan because many of these military regimes kind of use that to, to legitimize political Islam to consolidate their roles, right? Like we are anti-imperialist when they're really not, you know, you have, even though the sanctions were ongoing, I mean, the CIA was actively working with, uh, uh, you know, uh, military leaders in Sudan that are now like wanted by the ICC. Um, it was actively working with those folks. It was flying them out, having meetings with them. And so it's very, you know, what, how, how, um, Bashir's, uh, like, use of, of uh, anti-imperialist uh, rhetoric and all of that is really just to confuse because there is a history of anti-imperialism related to Islam in the country, uh, but it by no means reflects the reality, right? What happens under Bashir is, you know, you have militarization and, you know, you have the integration of security forces in a masculinized, Islamist dependent capitalist class. And so, you know, he, it was a very violent period um, in, a, in a social formation where agriculture was one of the uh, main sources of livelihood and continues to be privatization of land uh, and lack of like any like articulated investment in the sector creates this huge problem uh, across the board right and so people start struggling and any kind of relations of, of Bashir is really to ensure that he keeps his power not not to reflect the ideas that we see as as uh, what the rhetoric he uses basically and you know it's a very like an under it's, the, it's an Islamist patriarchal 
regime. It establishes structures of appropriation and violence uh, in the forms of state uh, apparatus, you know, like peristals, public uh, funds. Uh, it sets up more and more paramilitary forces to ensure uh, its control. So it sets up bodies that would control, coerce, and oppress uh, at the even grassroots level, like the popular committees or the public order police in Khartoum. Uh, it creates a military and nepotistic patronage network of capital accumulation, uh, you know, and it privatizes, commodifies the public sector. Uh, you had like, you know, some of my research brings up like in 2016, you had, I don't know, like 1% of, of uh, the federal funding go towards health and 2.2 to education and 70 something to the military. So it's really a, a time where you see like a militarization and, and, and uh, uh, austerity levels, uh, austerity measures are being taken and people are suffering, you know, people are suffering to live. To, to survive. And so that is how I would categorize the Bashir era. And by no means has it been. It has had appeal because much of what he came under, you know, Turabi had a large uh, uh, Islamist uh, uh, following uh, and that, that that party was, you know, that had ensured a certain kind of support from the people. But by 2019, we've seen the Sudanese like completely reject any kind of Islamic uh, Republic state. That's not what they want because they have now realized like that has been used to oppress the working people as opposed to bring any kind of anti-imperialist or liberation uh, um, reality. Thanks for that. I mean, uh, it's just to relate to the the major, uh, you know, uh, role of Bashir era. And, uh, you know, I just related to something that's relevant to now, uh, the question, the now down question and relationship with the Ethiopia. During the Bashir era, we saw how the uh, Sudanese state was in, in alliance or somewhat aligned with the TPLF regime in regards to the Nile Diam question. Uh, pretty much not going going along with the, the development uh, and, uh, you know, pretty much uh, opposing or not closely uh, tight as we're seeing right now with the Sudan and Egypt state uh, alliance. Um, how, how do you view, I mean, I know the, the Nile Dam question is politicized and it's important uh, for the region, but how do you view the Nile Dam and its relationship to the Bashir era versus now and also the Ethiopia as well? Um, so I think you said it like that this question has been politicized. Like if you're looking at the, like the Grand Renaissance Dam, um, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is what they call it. It's really a, a public project that is going to be, it's, it's not only self-funded, uh, but it's also a project that can potentially uh, provide energy for the whole region, like the whole horn, um, you know. So, I mean, today more than like, you know, um, 80%, I think, of our people live without uh, um, healthy and accessible uh, um, means to energy. And so something like the GERD is genuinely looking at it. Um, I mean, currently Africa generates maybe 4% of global electricity uh, and like, you know, 72%, 75% of Somalis, 72% uh, of South Sudanese, 40% of Sudanese, 45% of Ethiopians, you know, 25% of Kenyans, 40% of Djiboutians, uh, 50% of Eritreans and so on still depend on like firewood and animal dung to provide themselves with heat for cooking and light you know so there's a shared issue like the survival of our people and the development of our region you know um, so looking at the GERD in that perspective you see it as a necessary public project that is only one of the things we are going to do like you know you look at the Chad Basin there's so many uh, um, things in Africa there's so many public projects in Africa 
America that can help us develop as a people. But uh, too often our political leaders politicize them and use them as leverage for their own power consolidations. And so how I see like these shifting, you know, Egypt has been a large player and Egypt does not is does not want a regional uh, power that can really counter its its current and and you know we know Egypt receives support from the US and, and Saudi and all of these other uh, states and so um really to your question is like these these uh, shifting perspectives of what the states of these countries think about these public projects are more so related to their ability to to control or their uh, relations with uh, and the kind of support they're getting from different uh, regimes you know the egyptian um, regime has been supporting the military of sudan so it wouldn't be a surprise if the sudanese re- military regime comes out and says it's against this so but when you look at probably projects like this aside from the states like they are in benefit to all of our people so i think it's when you're looking at questions of the nile and stuff i think the people of all these uh, uh, uh who are living under all of these states need to hijack the conversation right it's not supposed to be a conversation that's going to be had between states it's between experts of all these countries and it's between uh, the people the people who are suffering the women who have to like you know like work for hours to get any source of of heat and all of that um, and i hope that answers your question yeah it does uh to just move along to the you know the focus on the present politics um you know the rise of hamdak uh he was an actor political actor that the international community quote-unquote international community when i say that i mean washington uh mm-hmm. he you know there was a pretty much connection to samantha powers uh different ned forces in the region that were uh linked to him so hamdak the rise of him as a civilian, uh, you know, he got legitimacy from, uh, uh, you know, the protest movement uh, and and so on. So he, he rose to this position of power where he, you know, he got the position, uh, you know, uh, high profile position. But uh, it seemed the last few weeks or uh, after his uh, him resigning, the perception, the public perception was, uh, you know, backlash negative because he uh, was in cahoots with the military junta uh, in Sudan. So, you know, what's your perspective on the question of Hamdak and how there are different forces who, you know, Washington supports individuals that would uh, co-opt these bottom up uh, protests uh, to center and neo liberal agenda or anti-working struggle workers struggle so what is your perspective on the hamdak resigning or just overall i just want to hear your thoughts yeah well you know i think it's so interesting to see like the kind of backlash that happened towards hamdak which shows you uh the the depth and the the concrete questions that the people of sudan are asking for because um you know uh hamdak was a technocrat uh and he you know so let me just give you a little background like uh, you know once uh, Bashir is removed and people like refuse the the military to lead transitions there's an agreement made between the transitional military council and the freedom uh, the forces of freedom and change which is an umbrella organization of different opposition groups including like uh, armed groups the communist party rebel groups uh, political parties different women's and youth groups as well and so um 
they agree on a transition period of three years, three months. Uh, the first would be led by the military for the first 21 months. And then a civilian member would be leading that, uh, that, that, uh, government for the next 18 months. So the, uh, like the October 25 coup we see demonstrates the unwillingness of the military to relinquish, uh, more power to civilian members as, because they, their time, their time was like reaching the, its end, right? And their position as the leaders of the government was reaching its end. And so, um, you know, I think, uh, Hamdok was forced to kind of come to that agreement with, after the coup, but nonetheless, he did not reflect the people's wishes because people stayed in the streets even after the coup. Uh, the military was forced to take back and say, okay, you know, never mind, we're reinstating your civilian government, so go back home. And they were like, no, at this point, like, I think the leading uh, uh, slogan is, especially like perpetuated by the resistance committees, is no negotiation, no partnership, no compromise. Right. And Hamdok was willing to negotiate. He was willing to compromise. And so the people have rejected him. Um, and I think that's what we're going to be seeing as currently the military is attempting to say, OK, let's let's uh, build. Uh, let's let's be a, let's build a civilian government. But uh, what they're doing is just reinstalling people who used to work within the Bashir regime. Uh, and so I see like one of the things, the rejection of Hamdok shows us the clarity uh, with people like people do not want military rule like that is the and that is what the masses the majority of folks within the movement are calling for is an end to military rule within Sudan um, and so I think that's what it shows us and, and I, I appreciate the fact that uh, uh, folks have rejected Hamdok but it wasn't Hamdok it was the system he was willing to negotiate with Thank you for that. Uh, you know, I think bef I mean, before we move on to the question, uh, you know, the, the importance of uh, SPA, who are the SPA, who, who are the resistant committee? I think uh, p uh, people or people listening have to understand. And um, if you can, before uh, you explain, uh, you know, just give us your idea or perspective on the formation of the SPA, resistant committee and their role. But uh, there, before you answer that, I think there seems to be some speculation right now on uh, social media that the there's certain faction within the resistance community that uh, may, uh, met with the State Department or uh, United uh, Nation officials. So uh, it, it seemed like there's some effort to co-opt it by Washington again, like they did Hamdok. But uh, just to, before, uh, you know, uh, just just to give you just to for people to understand the SPA and resistance community, who are they, where they, how they form and, you know, what's your perspective on that? Um, so yeah, these are like important social forces, like in the ongoing since 2019. But um, just to give you a little background, like the SPA, which is the Sudanese Professionals Association, emerged from like an an alliance charter uh, in 2016. Uh, but um, you know, uh, they were really unofficial, like unofficially being formed because their leaders kept being targeted by the state and everything. And but it was a like it was a collection of different professional groups, like doctors, journalists, lawyers, engineers, and university teachers. Um, uh, but by 2019, other professionals, including teachers, uh, um, health inspectors, uh, kind of form their own associations and start joining this uh, association. Um, and so the SBA has been a leading force in, in 2019. Um, Leading in a sense, like I would say there are many leading forces, so don't get me wrong. It didn't function as a vanguard party or what we consider like a uh, top down, but it was definitely one of the, the uh, organizations who's been coordinating um, 
coordinating um, protests and because of their reach and their, their um, give me a second. Yeah, so because of their reach, they were the ones who would be like, okay, we are having protests this day at this time. And so they were the leading coordinating forces, right? And they kind of were quick to kind of uh, help establish the, the charter that everybody, all civilians groups signed on to. And they kind of organized the demonstrations. They And they started these negotiations with the, with the state uh, and they were publicly addressed. So that that is the forces the SPA has been. Um, and, you know, when you look at the resistance committees, it's like um, the SPA is at the national level, working at the national level and at the u- union level, whereas this, the resistance committees are grassroots organizations. Uh, and so in many places, the SPA's mobilization was supported and undertaken by these neighborhood resistance committees. Uh, they were formed in major cities and rural communities, and they've been proliferating since 2019 as well, even though the first emergence of uh, a committee like that was in 2013. Uh, and so in some places, these committees uh, replaced the popular committees that Bashir had put in place for like surveillance and corruption. Uh, but um, they, 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 um, they have their functions uh, are just beyond uh, just uh, organizing demonstrations. You know, for example, you have a resistance committee in Ombada, which is Omdurman, one of the, the regions in Khartoum, uh, the capital, uh, like that, that committee used to organize solidarity markets once a week, which means uh, products, necessity products like oil and rice were sold at a cost price instead of inflated market prices. Um, and, you know, you have other volunteers, for example, in uh, Arkawit, which is a neighborhood in Khartoum, uh, they mobilized to monitor the distribution and use of flour by the bakeries in order to control inflated prices of bread that resulted from wheat or bread smuggling. Um, and, you know, you have like a lot of them like in Khartoum alone like when 2018 the protest breakout had 30 active resistance committees and many dormant ones and it, they were quickly they quickly were formed from rural communities in uh, you know Nertiti which is central Darfur to urban f- peripheries around Khartoum itself and upscale neighborhoods uh, or different uh, <laughs> scale neighborhoods their structure and function was kind of replicated and but they all were bottom up kind of organized is folks in the neighborhood some employed some unemployed, some with previous political uh, uh, past, some who've never been politically organized, came together to kind of address their neighborhood's plight and to also coordinate with the SPA in terms of when the SPA put out a call, okay, this day we're going on prote- protesting here. You know, the resistance committees took it up, called a meeting in the neighborhood, told everybody, and then they coordinated with other resistance committees to kind of help each other out. And, you know, it was also one of the reasons to why they were able to subvert the military state. Because when you had folks come out like in one region in one neighborhood uh, there were demonstrations and the security forces would come in to crack down um, they would call on the other resistance committees in other neighborhoods to go out so they, this kind of like grassroots organization allowed them to kind of challenge the military apparatus right even though you know as we're seeing today people are dying in scores uh, uh, you know they're martyrs left and right uh, but nonetheless these, this kind of structure helped to organize and to challenge Challenges the military. Wow, that's really a great uh, in-depth breakdown. Um, you know, to just finish off, um, you know, to focus on the future possibilities and outcomes that we uh, we hope to see in Sudan, but in its impact to the Horn. You know, uh, with this episode, uh, it's 
you know, the word revolution is used. And I think uh, for the Sudan, yeah, I mean, the, the, the revolution is a process. And sometimes that word gets thrown around by liberals and to say everything is a revolution. But I think there's something unique about Sudan and, uh, you know, it's labor formation and it's history and it's uh, impact. And the, the, the formation of these protests and resistant community in the SBA is unique. Uh, and that's something that you don't see in the horn. But how do you see the labor union and the future possibility for Sudan? Uh, what is the hope that you want to see for Sudan overall and uh, its importance to the Horn of Africa? Okay. So I think for anybody um, interested in the transformation of politics in Africa and the transformation of our communities uh, and going beyond uh, um, because the, these dependent capitalist states that are function, functioning within our countries, I think Sudan is very important to follow. Um, you know, not only just uh, Despite the like the regime, successive regimes militarizing and manipulating differences within the working people, uh, with uh, you know, despite them subjugating women, uh, twenty nineteen uprising was a multi ethnic, multi racial, multi religious, and multi regional participation and solidarity. And so, if you're looking at any uh, you know radical socialists uh, within like like our history of of uh, uh, pan Africanism, whether it's Cabral, whether it's Walter Rodney, whether it's you know, uh, women like Andaye who've written on organizing uh, and the future of transforming our societies, uh, you understand like what is happening in Sudan, especially considering it is the microcosm of Africa, right? It is this like very, uh, and it has a history of different people being oppressed and exploited in very different ways. And these people have managed to come together, albeit like, you know, they're still working through it. Like uh, the, the Communist Party had left the FFC, like during the beginning, uh, like there's so much happening at, but generally looking at what is like transpiring um, is very important because you have uh, uh, its alliances and networks built between different groups uh, that reflect the national character of Sudan. And, uh, you know, you will also looking visibility of women's militant role. And so it's putting in questions of like, when we think of African politics, how do we think about like coming together, right? With all these different nations and nationalities like that exist in our countries, how are the Sudanese managing it, you know? And aside from that, the Sudanese people have been clear about like demilitarization, anti-military rule. Uh, they've been anti-imperialist, you know. Uh, you know when when uh, Saudi and the UAE, there was a point when the military had removed Bashir and attempted to hold power. Uh, Saudi and the UAE were like, we would give three hundred billion to the military so it can rebuild the structures, you know. And the people like there were, there was a sit-in ongoing at that time, outright rejected like we would rather starve than take Saudi money or like. So it shows you like the, the clarity people have been developing over time. And you're right, Sudan has a, this is the third uprising there, like it has a very strong history and a particular specific history. Uh, but it nonetheless is telling us of the possibilities that emerge within unions, within organizing, within grassroots organization, and within inclusion, right? Like within the necessity to, like that all sectors of society are participating, right? One of the challenges to the military was the fact that like, all civilians, including armed groups in South Kordofan and Blue Nile, had formed a coalition group. And so how do you, how, you cannot, like, you know, you can't challenge your whole society. If, it, if folks are divided, it would be much easier to sustain capitalist, you know, uh, systems and all of that. But once you have the awareness that um, our unity, uh, our coming together, our organizing, our clarity is is going to be, uh, is, is a force to reckon with, is power, um, I think then you're seeing what 
you're seeing. I think the the Western power underestimated the Sudanese people. Bashir underestimated the Sudanese people. The military regime underestimated the Sudanese people because they thought killing them, uh, you know, using uh, racialized and ethnicized uh, histories against them would work. But what we're seeing is that the, the Sudanese people are relentless and they're learning, you know, they're learning as they go. Uh, and so I think it's very important for anybody focused on, you know, what does it look like for the future of, uh, you know, Africa, for the future of uniting Africa, for the future of, uh, uh, you know, removing these states that have never served us and that have a colonial legacy and building our own forms of political power. Uh, what does political participation look like? You know, you're seeing everybody from tea sellers on the streets to like, you know, professional doctors participating, negotiating in the same rooms. You know, these are huge, huge uh, things that should be of, of uh, interest to all of us thinking about transforming our, our countries and our, our continent more more so. That was that was beautiful. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, you know, I just want to say that, you know, the global left have re- has to really support the Sudanese uh, uh, bottom up protest uh, and this mass movement and the labor union and the Sudanese com- uh, Communist Party and various uh, progressive uh forces. I think the mistake of 2018, 2019 from my observation is like there was these left media gatekeeper who portrayed the protest as co-opted, neoliberal oriented, totally dismissing the class struggle, totally dismissing the worker struggle and the perspective of the labor union. So for the global left, I really uh, uh, hope that you're not falling for the trap again of looking at the situation via these uh, typical left, uh, predominantly white uh, uh, media outlets or personalities on Twitter who present the issue as this is a co-opted protest in Sudan. Therefore, everything else doesn't matter. No, it matters. And uh, let's learn from 2018 to now and uh, center voices like Mahadar who understand the situation and can give clarity to, you know, to focus on the class struggle, the labor union. These are important conversations that we as a region needs to happen, uh, need to have because there's too much focus on neoliberal topics. The diaspora is just like looking at the situation via a limited lens. Let's focus on the worker struggle, the class struggle, uh, uniting the region in a different vision. So, you know, Mahada, I really appreciate your perspective. And uh, this is what was very much enlightening and a uh, very informative uh, discussion. Thank you very much for uh, being part of this episode. Hey, thank you so much, Fimon. I appreciate you having me on your platform. And like, I appreciate having to discuss all these things. And I want to urge everybody who is out there, like there's a lot of Sudanese folks who are working, organizing. So, you know, to get informed, like there's a lot you can get informed in many different, you don't have to be taking mainstream news analysis and internalizing those things. The Sudanese people are like more organized than they've ever been. So, you know, look, find out like what you said. I would echo what you said to find out for yourself what's really going on on the ground. Once again, thank you very much and uh, power to the masses. Thanks you. Thank you, Mahadar. Thank you.